I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Today, we are joined, the Trade Guys, by our colleague, Jim Lewis. All of us are sequestered in our homes in the DMV, D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. And uh, we're here to talk about China and trade and all the other things. Jim, Scott, Bill, a new poll, uh, this is the Harris poll, shows that outside the Beltway, the coronavirus is actually bringing Americans together on the China issue. Republicans and Democrats now largely agree that the Chinese government bears responsibility for the spread of the pandemic and that it can't be trusted on this or any other issue and that the U.S. government should maintain a tough position on China, on trade and overall, especially if Beijing again falters in its commitments. Guys, what do you make of this? Well, the story of America is we always need an enemy. We had the Soviet Union for a long time. Uh, in the 80s, we were worried about Japan. This is interesting because it's the first time, really, that we've had a, a rival or an adversary that's both an economic and a security rival. You know, the Soviet Union wasn't an economic rival. Japan was not a security rival. Uh, now we're dealing with a rival that is both. And I think that has people disconcerted. Uh, the poll that you described, it seems to me, is simply affirmation of a trend that's been going on for a couple of years anyway. People have been moving in that direction. If you listen to members of Congress, both parties have been moving in that direction of suspicion of or hostility to China. Members of Congress appear to be trying to each outdo each other and who can be tougher on, on China. So in a sense, this is, uh, this is nothing new. Yeah, I, I guess I'd add to that that Chinese have been unwilling. And when we say China, we really mean the Chinese Communist Party and its uh, leader for life, uh, Xi Jinping. When China became the world's second largest economy, a number of people said, look, guys, the stuff you did before, you can't do anymore. You have to be responsible. And they were unwilling to do that. Corona is a good example, which is the first case occurred in Wuhan in November, the Chinese concealed that for months, right? So um, it is reasonable to say, can you trust this government? Um, it is the last surviving Leninist government in the world, unless you count uh, North Korea or Cuba, and they don't behave in a way that is particularly friendly or trustworthy. That's an important point that I think we've talked about before. This is not simply American paranoia. This is uh, Chinese policy moving in a different direction. Xi Jinping has taken the country in a different direction, in economically towards more state control, uh, more state intervention in the economy, uh, diplomatically toward a more aggressive uh, foreign policy in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, and domestically toward uh, more repression towards minorities, academics, and journalists. And, and there was a debate in China between what I would call the internationalists who said China should become, you know, more like uh, any other big power, China should observe global norms, and the nationalists who said, no, um, we need to do our own thing, we need to emphasize Chinese interests. And unfortunately for us, this debate ended probably five years ago or more, 
uh, with the nationalists winning. So there was a moment when China could have become like a France or a Germany or a Japan. And then they would have actually been much more powerful competitors because their government might have been willing to give their companies more space to compete. But that's not the direction they chose to go. And one thing that gets left out of this debate a lot, I'll just add as a footnote, is Chinese espionage against the U.S. is unprecedented. It's reached a level that surpasses what the Soviets did in the Cold War. This is not the action of a friend. Jim, explain what you mean by Chinese espionage into the U.S. Is it is it espionage into our corporate secrets? Is it espionage into government secrets? Both. What 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 is it all about? Um, this gets back to Bill's point, which is the Chinese blend uh, state activities and uh, commercial activities in a way that we're not used to. And in a discussion I had a few years ago with some members of the PLA, you know, we said, look, you know, everybody spies on each other. We get it. What we object to is you stealing commercial technology for business purposes. And they said to us, this was a PLA senior colonel, um, stealing commercial technology is national security for China. They use human agents. They use cyber espionage, which is their preferred vehicle. They use foreign investment. It's, it's really a massive orchestrated campaign to acquire Western technology. In the same Harris poll that I was citing about Republicans and Democrats blaming China for the spread of coronavirus, there's even more agreement that if China doesn't fulfill its obligations under President Trump's phase one trade deal, both strong majorities in both parties believe that the United States government should reimpose tough tariffs if Beijing doesn't live up to its obligations. Scott, what do you think about that? Well, look, this is, I think, the success of uh, President Trump, who has who has really moved the, the window on China. And this, is, this was a very long arc. Jim described the arc, policy arc that China followed. In the United States, there was sort of a 30-year foreign policy consensus that incorporating China into the institution's of the post-war institutions and into global norms was a good idea. That was culminated really by the their WTO accession in 2000, 2001. And uh, at that time you had then USTR, later Deputy Secretary of State Robert Zellick, call for China to become a, what he called a responsible stakeholder in the world system. Well, that didn't work out. The view that uh, Donald Trump came into office with is that uh, they're ripping us off and to some extent they're a menace to our country uh, has has now become the prevailing opinion. And it happened pretty fast, but it happened for a lot of reasons. One of the things that I'm most concerned about is this looks to me like serious reputational damage. China suffered serious reputational damage, and it's one of the hardest things to recover. You can restore trade flows, you can restore agreements, but people's attitudes and ideas about whether it's a, a, a brand or a country uh, those are those tend to be very fixed and different. Once you've once you've harmed your own reputation, whether as an individual or uh, or some broader collection, it's very difficult to get back. Clearly, they've had damaged their reputation here in the United States. Do you think it's damaged in other parts of the world? Do you think it's damaged in Africa or Latin America? Well, I haven't seen any data, but I would I want to I want to look at that. I'm actually curious about what's happened. I, I know that the United Kingdom uh, Health Service bought some test kits from China, and uh, basically all of them are non-functional. Uh, so there there's an experience going on that's not just U.S. 
that I think I think we'll want to learn from. I, but I, I don't know the answer to your question. So I've been interviewing a lot of people on that topic. And uh, in Brussels, what I heard, this was from a commissioner, is, you know, we're on the same trajectory when it comes to China. We're just a couple of years behind you. I've heard similar things in Berlin with the caveat that, you know, China's our largest trade partner. When I was at the African Union headquarters and they were taking me up to see the director, the the people I was with said, you know, the Chinese built our building. So when you talk, be sure and speak clearly into the wall. And then they burst out laughing. So in Africa and Europe, in uh, Korea and Japan, uh, in Southeast Asia, I see a lot of suspicion of China. The complicating factor is one, we've built these interconnected supply chains. And two, China's economic power makes it difficult for people. You know, what I hear a lot of times is, look, you're the United States. You can confront them. We're not the United States. We share your views, but we're not going to confront them. Well, so the United States does confront them. But what does it do if we're confronting them and and nothing changes? That gets to the trajectory question, which is, I think that certainly as long as Xi Jinping is in power, relations will continue to get worse. In part, he doesn't have a choice. I mean, he can't he can't back down. And in part, as people uncover the behavior that the Chinese have indulged in for probably about a decade, um, there'll be a reluctance. You're seeing this in the polling. Uh, you know, three years ago, four years ago, if you went to, say, the Chamber of Commerce and talked about some of the problems we were having with China on technology transfer, espionage, you would get significant pushback from the companies. They did not want the relationship disturbed. I don't see that happening anymore, at least privately. So there's been a sea change in people's attitudes towards China, not just in the U.S., but in other developed economies. Well, let me let me let me ask you this, Jim. So speaking of sea change towards China, it seems to me that in the wake of coronavirus and what we're dealing with now, is there going to be a sea change towards China in terms of you know, Chinese businessmen coming here to do business, us going there to do business in China, um, Chinese student visas coming here to populate our universities. Do you think there's going to be a chill on those type of things? Uh, Chinese, tour- Chinese tourists coming to the United States to, to um, you know, visit the United States, which has been lucrative for our, our trade and travel industry. I'll, I'll defer to to Bill and Scott on that, but I do think you see companies rethinking the dependence on China as their central or even sole supplier. So I do see companies moving out of China, not just in reaction to Trump administration policies, but um, because of concerns about Chinese IP theft, uh, rising prices in China. And I think coronavirus will accelerate that. So in some ways, if we play this right, um, things will move in the direction the Trump administration will like. But I don't know if Bill or Scott have views on that. I agree with that. I think you're right in saying this was a trend that began before the virus. I think the coronavirus will accelerate it. But I think in some ways, China's objectives have not changed. Some of their methodology has changed. Foreign direct investment has declined dramatically over the last three years. The inbound investment, Chinese investment here, uh, and it's true that we're being tougher on that in terms of rejecting uh, via CFIUS uh, more investment proposals. 
but it, it was declining anyway. What the Chinese have turned to, and, and there was a story today that reflected that they're turning to it in Europe as well, is more uh, research partnerships, research endeavors, uh, more collaborations that don't involve acquiring companies. They involve working together. Uh, they involve sending Chinese scientists and engineers here to collaborate. You know, historically, that's been regarded as a good thing. It moves innovation forward. It broadens, if you will, the, the, the gene pool of smart people thinking about things. Uh, and it produces better results. Uh, but people now are beginning to be concerned. The Justice Department, which has a, a, you know, a branch that is investigating these things, uh, people are now are beginning to be concerned that this has... Uh, uh, that the Chinese are not in it for the benefit of all mankind, that they're not in it for the benefit simply of increasing knowledge. They're in it for the benefit of acquiring uh, more technology for themselves. It's just a different way of doing it than uh, through acquiring companies. Now, the backdrop to all this, of course, is the, it was what the growth rate is in China. And China has been an irresistible market for 20 years or so because of the very rapid uh, uh, economic growth that's been going on. Well, that second differential has turned negative. And, uh, and the, to the extent that we have accurate numbers, it appears that uh, the current global slowdown is going to hit China harder than it does other de developed economies, mostly because of the collapse in import demand. From most of that import demand would, would be normally created by Japan, the United States, and Europe. Um, and, uh, and it's cratering. So the, uh, all, all this said, this is, this is economic trouble for China that it didn't need at the same time that it's got this, this really difficult global uh, situation that it's facing. But that, that leads us back to the dread uh, word decoupling. And there are some who would prefer a very blunt decoupling. We may end up there. But right now, that's not possible. And it's very difficult to design a policy that restricts um, the Chinese activities that we don't like while still allowing um, Chinese researchers, Chinese companies to behave in uh, normal activity. There's some in the Pentagon and the White House who say there are no Chinese companies who are not acting at the behest of Beijing. I think that's a little over the top, but for some period of years, we're going to have to draw this difficult line between continuing to cooperate commercially and academically with China, while at the same time beginning to tighten or restrict the Chinese activities intended to basically gain illicit advantage. And that's a hard line. That would be hard for any administration to, to come up with a policy how do you draw that line? That's the, the age-old issue in the technology control area. I mean, how do you let the benign stuff go and, and uh, not the critical stuff? That gets back to, to Andrew's initial question, which is the, the first thing you can do is you can do all the traditional counter-espionage measures. If you know someone is a Chinese intelligence uh, collector, it could be a student, it could be a worker, throw them out. Um, we haven't done enough of that. The second part is you need to distinguish who you're working with. And the U.S. has made some good progress there. Uh, for example, we found out that um, federal dollars were going to PLA researchers. Um, that was a mistake. We found that some American researchers were double dipping and taking money from NIH, for example, and then using the same research uh, in China for double profit, you can start to to narrow the the aperture here.
Um, doesn't mean a complete cutoff, and it doesn't mean it'll be easy, but if you start a simple one, China now sends minders to U.S. universities, people who watch other students to make sure they don't say something hostile to the regime. Well, they're not that hard to identify. Just throw them out. Actually, I noticed that in my class uh, when I was teaching at, at Maryland. We would routinely have somewhere between three and five Chinese students each semester, and there often seemed to be one uh, who towed the party line very clearly. And it was easy to assume that that uh, her, and in most cases, it was a he, it was a she, actually, that her job was to keep track of the other students more than it was to pass the course. Gentlemen, are we entering a technological or technology cold war with China? Well, that's what uh, Hank Paulson described when he spoke at CSIS in February 2019. He's one of the foremost uh, China hands uh, still active, and so I'd take his word for it. Jim would know best, though. I, I tend to not like some of the old metaphors like Cold War or arms race or, you know, it's clear that the Chinese government has hostile intent. They are working on research. Uh, they're stealing our research. The question is that you hear from companies and universities, perhaps less loudly than in the past, is they want access to that Chinese talent. If we bring Chinese here to work on our stuff, some of them go back and they take skills with them. So I think competition tends to be overrated in part because the Chinese tend to um, exaggerate their abilities. In some areas, they're good. In most areas, they're behind. But we need to think more, and this is Bill's line and I think Scott's line, we need to think more about how we accelerate than worrying about keeping China behind. Well, how do we accelerate in an environment where a lot of our um, research and development gets stolen by Chinese espionage. So, and we, I think all of us at some point or another have taught. And one thing I used to do is I would ask my class at uh, Georgetown, if I offered you guys a complete free ride, if you went into science, technology, engineering, or math, every cost covered, how many of you would do it? And generally about 90% of the class would, would raise their hand. We need to put the money that we used to spend on creating a skilled workforce back into the universities. That doesn't mean, you know, I'm not so sure about an industrial plan or industrial strategy. I mean, Washington loves strategies, but certainly building the resources. And in particular, you hear this from in every technology sector. We could hire more Americans, but the Americans aren't there. So we go to China, we go to India. Let's build those Americans. I and mean, you want more engineers, buy them. How can the Trump administration limit China's access to critical U.S. technology without harming U.S. business interests? There's a couple areas where uh, we, we could look. And I think the, the first thing is the coming back to the point, and this is a cue for Bill after I do the second point, we have to build our own capabilities. Um, we, we've been sort of coasting in some ways on the Cold War investment in R&D. And the private sector does a lot of D, but they don't do much of the basic research. So we need to put the money back into research and workforce. But there's other things you can do. The easy things that are relatively easy are to increase counter-espionage activities against China, to be more, uh, more assertive in uh, arresting Chinese agents and uh, either jailing them or throwing them out. 
There are trade measures we can take, and Bill and Scott would know better than I. The one that will be hard for this administration is when you talk to different Europeans, when you talk to the Japanese, they're ready to move against China in restricting its access to technology. But they're looking for us to lead the way. And so far, we haven't done that, at least in any coherent fashion. So those are things you could do. Better counterespionage, better investment, um, trade measures, and things cooperating with our allies. No, I, I, I agree with that. And we, this is something that comes up all the time. And it, it's, it's going to be an issue in, in the election because it's been a, 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 a consistent criticism of this administration by all of the Democratic candidates that uh, this administration doesn't build coalitions. They don't work with other people. And in particular, China is, is, not, is too big a problem to be solved individually. Lots of other countries have the same problems, but uh, they're getting ready. Some people are getting ready sooner than others, but there's a lot of countries out there, not just uh, in Europe, uh, Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand. They're very worried about this, uh, and they've got the same problems, and they're looking for leadership, uh, and they're not finding them. You know, we have a problem on the private sector side as well, uh, and I would call it the the apps versus atoms problem. There's a lot of technological development that goes on, but the way venture capital and the way the way companies allocate it, it often doesn't go to the new breakthrough inventions. Just a quick example, you know, you have a couple of kids who've got a new uh, uh, mobile phone video game, and a venture capitalist looks at that, and for one hundred fifty thousand dollars, they can they can see if the prototype works, you know, and and it's a relatively small risk to the VC. In the meantime, if you want a new drug, as we're we're hoping for now in this pandemic. That is, you know, four or five years and uh, maybe $500 million. And it's a very different decision point and much higher risk. And so I think for some reason, uh, the things that we're in, we're, we invent a lot of stuff as a country. And the private sector uh, has a tremendously innovative approach to markets. Uh, but it, we tend to focus on things that, that are not this, what we invented in the 60s and 70s. So I don't know how you change that, but, but that's, a, that's, a, that's a fact of current life. You know, one of, one of my favorite stories, just to digress for a second, was when I was on the China Commission, we had a hearing on these issues, and we had a witness who had invented the video game. Exactly Scott's story. And he had, it, was, uh, it was called Go Go Mango, and it was for little kids. It was, a, it was an educational game that helped them eat right. But uh, the guy who invented it, who was in his 20s, you know, said he kept getting these emails from Chinese customers saying, when is version 2.0 coming out? We really like this game. So he talked to his marketing guy and said, you know, how many downloads have we gotten from China for, the, for version 1.0? You know what the answer was? One. That was all I needed. <laughs> exactly. Well, look, the, the Chinese, it would be better to be... Uh, partners with the Chinese. It would be better to take advantage. They're very skillful. They have uh, good technology. They would be better as partners, but under the current government, that's not going to happen. So one of the issues is to what extent can we uh, influence um, the direction that China goes in the future? And Xi Jinping may have appointed himself president for life. I'm not sure everyone in China is happy with that. He's careful to go around and arrest whoever expresses unhappiness, but usually this president for life thing doesn't work out too well. So one question is, 
are we holding until there's some sort of new government in China? When I say new, I don't mean no longer the CCP. It will always be the Chinese Communist Party for a while. But some leader who might be more like Deng or Hu Jintao or some of the older guys. Uh, or are we in this for uh, an irreparable long haul? Um, I don't think that's clear yet. I, I think we need to maybe do better at thinking of how we influence Chinese policy. What they say, they're very confident. What they are in private is they're skitzy because they range from from deep anxiety to overconfidence, uh, sometimes in the same conversation. Let me ask you guys this. How much do we need China? For instance, one of the reasons why we can't find hand sanitizer right now is Gojo Industries, which makes Purell hand sanitizer, uh, a Cleveland company, has experienced an estimated 55% drop in seaborne imports in the first quarter, including an 80% drop in shipments from China. China makes some of the parts that go into the pumps and housings and collars that go into the hand sanitizer Purell products. So we need China for a lot of our stuff. Well, you got to look at that on a time horizon. We definitely need them today. All right. Do we need them five years from now? Right. That's a very different question. Right. It depends what assumptions you make. Well, so what do you think, Scott? Well, uh, I think we're going to see the, a major effort uh, by supply chain managers and by the government to increase or improve resilience of supply chains. Now, this has been a particularly difficult test. When you say hospital equipment, something like that, usually high demand for hospital equipment occurs in only part of the country. Some places hit by tornadoes or some places hit by a hurricane. Uh, things like that. It's not. It's not. It's not nationwide, and it's not an international pandemic like this. So this is this is an unusual stress on supply networks. But I do think one of the follow up items coming out of this, as we recover, will be a, a, a great focus on uh, resilience of supply networks, it, particularly pharmaceuticals, medical equipment, medical devices, medical supplies. Uh, I think there will be a sensitivity to producing them with, uh, I, I guess, the Def Defense Production Act would call them reliable suppliers. Uh, so we'll see what happens. This this could be good for our neighbors. It could actually, if the fine chemistry business is something that is well done in Mexico, they just don't do as, as much of it as China does. So if you're looking at pharmaceutical pre precursor chemicals, uh, it's entirely possible that uh, that Mexico could be a winner in the near term. But I, w I wouldn't predict any of that because it's, it's very intricate and somewhat idiosyncratic. But I think, I think there will be a, 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 a direction set by the very polling you referred to uh, early on, Andrew, uh, that will lead us to, to less reliance on China. There's a line there that we have to be careful of, of drawing, though. The, the Defense Production Act, uh, as I recall, refers to reliable sources of supply. There is a tendency, at least in, from some people in the administration, to define reliable as American. Yes. Period. That would be a problem. And that puts us in a very difficult position. If reliable means allies, if it means neighbors, uh, that opens up a lot more doors than if it means everything has to be made in America. Because I think that's a ticket to being uh, non-competitive. Well, it's, it cuts. Most importantly, it cuts us off from innovation. I would never recommend that in in something as advanced and fast moving as medical technology or, or pharmaceuticals, because there are too many people not in the United States who who have good ideas who are implementing them. I mean, the the, the first antiviral that looked at to hold promise uh, for COVID nineteen was a Japanese product. So, this innovation is happening everywhere. 
Buy America cuts you off from that. And it, I, I think it's actually dangerous in the long run, not just more expensive and cumbersome, but downright dangerous. Jim, what do you think? But we all think that people are going to diversify out of China. I mean, I think one of the lessons has been relying on a, a single supplier or a single country. Not Maybe you'll get the lowest price. One question is, will companies move away from lowest price in order to get diversity? And I think some of them will. Gentlemen, this has been a fascinating discussion. Jim, thank you for joining the Trade Guys today. Trade Guys, thanks for dialing in from your homes in Bethesda. Guys, we will be back next week. Um, We'll still be at home, presumably. To all of our listeners, be well, be safe, take care of each other. And uh, you can tune into this podcast the same place next week. Thanks very much. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.